This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. It's my pleasure to have Dr. Pankaj Gupta with me today to talk about his recent article in the Blue Journal focused on 24-7 in-hospital intensivist coverage in a pediatric ICU. So Pankaj, let me begin by asking about 24-7 ICU staffing. There's been a lot of discussion about 24-7 ICU staffing in adult ICUs over the last several years. And I'd say that the studies have been mixed. Um, some larger meta-analyses supporting it, the randomized controlled trial out of Penn not supporting it. Did you think before you did your study there was a reason that the results would be different in a PICU as opposed to an adult ICU? Thank you very much for this insightful question. You're correct. The adult data has shown mixed results on the impact of 24-7 coverage on the ICU outcomes. In fact, Society of Critical Care Medicine remains skeptical about the presence of around-the-clock in-house critical care physician within the high-intensity staffing model. In pediatrics, the data is limited to two recent single-center studies that demonstrate opposite results. As the PICU patients are very different than the adult patients, we expected a 24-7 model to be associated with better outcomes, and this is purely on an anecdotal experience. And the results from our study were in consensus with our original hypothesis, so we are not surprised. Mm -hmm. uh, based on our anecdotal experience, we felt these are the results we were going to find, and uh, that's what we found. Why did you think it would be different in a PICU than in an adult ICU? Because here in pediatric patients, the pathophysiology and um, the, the inertia, I'll say the way the patients behave to the therapies is so limited that the patients will start worsening within seconds and you have to mm -hmm. act within seconds. So if you don't do those things, the outcomes can change significantly as opposed to adults where the patients give you decent amount of time that you can think and act. In pediatrics, you have to act. And that's why if the in-house attending physician is there on the bedside, he can introduce the appropriate therapies right away. That was the hypothesis. Okay, that makes sense to me that maybe that they're physiologically churning over more quickly so there's that immediacy has more impact okay it seems like based on the study in, and the numbers of programs that were evolving right I think there were 15 that transitioned to 24-7 staffing model during the time that you were looking at at them that that kind of has been the model that people are moving towards and do you think that's just because people said oh this sounds right or um, is there another reason that there was already evolution despite what you just described as very limited data in the pediatric population? I think, again, this is a very insightful comment, and this was one of the reasons why we designed this study. 
you know, this is true that more institutions are moving on to a 24-7 model regardless of the data. I do not have a, any scientific reason for this transition. What I'm going to talk is all speculation. It is possible <clears throat> that the equity in small to medium-sized PICUs is increasing. These days, more small and medium-sized ICUs, PICUs, are performing high-intensity procedures like ECMO, high-frequency, cardiac surgeries that they were not performing before. And any of these procedures slash therapies, they require in-house physician as these patients require very close monitoring. So I think this is one of the main reasons that uh, a lot of programs are transitioning to 24-7 model. Again, this is a mere speculation. I do not have any hard data on this topic. Fair enough. That's the beauty of the podcast. We can speculate a little bit. <laughs> Speaking of which, so I think, as you said, your studies would be supportive of 24-hour seven staffing model. When it came to mortality and ICU length of stay, you also looked at mechanical, dura uh, mechanical ventilation duration, mortality after cardiac arrest. And I want to kind of dig into your results a little bit more. Many of these were statistically significant, and you did a lot of different analyses looking at them. But I'm wondering if you personally think that all of those differences, some of which were numbers of hours or parts of a day, are clinically significant. And if so, which ones were you, which ones would you hang your hat on? I think this is this is an excellent this is an excellent question. Personally, I think majority of these outcomes are clinically significant. And uh, as an author and as a practicing physician. I feel these do apply to our patients in the real life. With improving technology, improving scientific knowledge, deeper penetration of our healthcare in rural areas, mortality among the ICU patients is decreasing. In the past, patients had to travel hundreds of miles to get to a PICU. Now they don't because they have a PICU within their vicinity. So mortality has definitely improved to the point that we can say we are like 2 to 2.5% mortality in majority of the normal PICUs that take care of bread and butter critically ill patients. For these reasons, mortality as a sole outcome may not be a quality matrix in these patients, may not be the most ideal quality matrix to study in these patients. Therefore, we feel there should be morbidity outcomes and the morbidity outcomes that uh, I personally feel that are very, very important is the incidence of cardiac arrest because your quality of your ICU is reflection of how often cardiac arrest you're having within the ICU. Of course, if a patient is coding from outside the hospital and coming to your ICU, you don't have any control, but within your ICU, you do have control. Uh, then duration of mechanical ventilation and duration of ICU stay are the other quality matrix that I feel are very important morbidity outcomes that definitely reflect the quality of your team and the ICU. And we felt our study demonstrated for the most part 24-7 made a positive impact on the majority of the morbidity outcomes. But do you think that 0.3 of a day of mechanical ventilation is a significant, clinically significant, because clearly you're statistically significant, clinically significant difference? I think so, majority of the patients who come for uh, 
to the ICU not after say like complex operations or something they are ventilated for like one one and a half or two days so in those patients 0.3 or 0.4 is definitely significant fair enough i i still struggle with how much how how different that is when i look at those numbers but i i hear what you're saying and certainly for somebody who's coming back from a procedure and we're trying to get them extubated as quickly as possible i agree yeah but when you're looking at numbers of five and a half to six days I, I'm not sure as much, but I, I hear what you're saying. And I completely get what you're saying about looking at morbidity or the things we do in the ICU beyond mortality. Uh -huh. um, and I want to talk about mortality a little bit more because I'm, I'm interested in this as a difference between medical ICUs for adults and pediatric ICUs. And um, you did a bunch of different separate analyses and you looked at, um, which I want to talk about in a minute, but you looked at mortality with a bunch of with some different modifiers mm -hmm. my first question about mortality is is there an expected level of mortality in a pediatric ICU because I think you just said you know PICUs are getting down to the two percent mortality and things like that um, when I look at a medical ICU I say I expect that there's going to be a certain mortality it's 10% let's say I'm making up a number because People come in and die, and we know that a lot of people in the U.S. still die in an ICU. Um, but that may be different for kids, and I'm curious how how that plays out. What is an expected mortality in a PICU? I think again, this is this is a question that I struggle in my day-to-day -day practice because uh, before coming to Little Rock, Arkansas, I was in Boston, and then I went to Stanford. And I saw the extreme of ICUs, extremes of sickness and extremes of ICUs. Unfortunately, in pediatrics, as compared to adults, the numbers are very small and the variation of disease process is very wide. There are extreme of ICUs with some PICUs taking care of very sick patients because they may be the only PICU in the whole state while others managing relatively simple patients with low severity of illness. An example is Boston. In Boston, there are like three to four PICUs. The biggest one is Boston Children's, but there are other PICUs. The other PICUs are there, but uh, they, they are taking care of less, much less severity of illness patient than Boston Children's. So given these factors, it's difficult to provide an average mortality or the benchmark mortality, but mm -hmm. if you try to segregate, say for example, among cardiac arrest, what's the survival or what's the mortality? I think we have a consensus. If you make the subgroups, like for example, cardiac arrest, say sepsis, say cardiac surgery, we do have benchmarks. But as a whole, to say what should be the mortality in the PICU, it's hard to say because we take care of very diverse population as compared to adults. Because in adults, you have a medical ICU, you have a neurosurgical ICU, you have a cardiac ICU. In pediatrics, everything is lumped in the same PICU. Yeah. So that's why it's hard to provide a benchmark mortality. But if you go by disease process or in subgroups, we can, like for example, the average uh, mortality in after cardiac arrest is about 40 to 45%. And we can say that your, your survival should fall within 50 to 55%. In cardiac surgery, we know, depending on the complexity of the heart operation performed, what should be your mortality? We have benchmarks. So 
that that way we can provide a number but overall it's hard to provide a number fair enough i i i kind of started thinking about this more when i looked at you did at the analysis you did where you um looked at whether or not there was an alteration in code status do you want to walk through why you use that and did a separate analysis by that pro that marker absolutely so we excluded the patients with altered code status in our main analysis. And the reason why we excluded these patients from the main analysis is as we do not perform any resuscitative efforts in these patients or do not provide any extraordinary care in these patients because of their DNR status. As we excluded these patients from the original analysis, we performed a sensitivity analysis among these patients for the sake of completion because we wanted to show that if we just take the patients with the altered code status, will it affect the mortality? And not surprisingly, we did not find any difference in the mortality or any other outcomes associated in these patients if the patients are cared in 24-7 coverage or not 24-7 coverage. Yeah, their outcomes were the same. There was no impact of the inner, yeah. And that's, I, I agree. I think it was reasonable to exclude that in your original analysis. I think it's interesting that to think about that part of it, but it makes sense. Um, I want to build on something you were just talking about. It's it's a little bit tangential to it. It was talking about kind of the super PICUs versus the kind of average PICUs. And I know that's not technical terms, but you know what I mean, the ones that have the most extreme cases. I'm going to guess that most of those are in academic medical centers that have training programs. Um, so when I looked at some of the subgroup analysis, it seemed like that the benefit of 24-7 staffing was no longer apparent in hospitals with a training program. Was that right? And if so, what do you make of that? This is correct. I think this is a very uh, astute observation on your part. Training programs in our study refer to the residency or fellowship training program. It is possible that the trainees, such as uh, the residents or the critical care fellows, they provided close monitoring to children with uh, critical illness. Even in the absence of 24-7 in-house attending physician, the, training, the trainees in these programs provided a timely evaluation, improved diagnostic and therapeutic efficiency, and timely reductions of preventable medical errors that eventually improved the outcome. So, the concept is the same, it's just instead of attending physician, the trainees were providing that level of care. Mm -hmm. And uh, on a separate note, we published a paper in ACTA, I think in 2015, on the impact of training programs on the outcomes, and we felt the same thing, that they hugely improved the outcomes. Yeah, and I think the same thing is true in adults. I think we've seen the same pattern, that the nighttime coverage is loses its benefit if there are trainees there, if there are already residents there. Yeah. So would your take home be that this is particularly beneficial in those PICUs that don't have either residents or fellows? I think that'll be, uh, that'll be oh, as an author, I'll reserve my comments on that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> because since I didn't do it, uh, it was just a sub-analysis that we didn't dig in deep. So I'll I'll be careful, but for the most part, I think you're right. But I think I'll prefer to you know dig in deep and do more analysis before I come to that conclusion. 
fair enough. I think it's worth further study because I think the other thing I want you to just reflect on, and it's not something you studied, is what's come up in a lot of the discussion about this in adult ICUs is that there are other implications to having an attending around all the time in terms of training and autonomy and being able to take care of patients. Um, and I think there's pros and cons to having an attending around all the time in terms of learning. I think you could make an argument both ways. I'm curious what your personal thoughts are about um, the impact of 24-7 staffing on the educational experience. I think this is a very important issue and thanks for bringing it up. Uh, our study did not address the impact of 24-7 co coverage on the fellow's education or fellow's preparedness to be independent attending physician on completion of their training. As you may know, there was a recent survey from Duke and the authors demonstrated that increased direct intensivist involvement in decision making potentially adversely affects the development of house staff independence and preparedness to be an attending physician. Again, this is a survey. This is not hard data. This is a survey. Further, as we just discussed, our study demonstrated that 24-7 attending coverage in training programs like the fellowship or the, or the residency training did not make any difference in mortality at ICU, ICU discharge. Although this is not substantiated with the current data, it is possible that we can achieve both the goals of training physicians of obtaining good outcomes at the patient level at the same time training fellows and residents. So as you said, in adult ICUs, there's way more data than pediatric ICUs and this is something worth looking into it. Maybe we can enter, we can have a sweet spot where we can have the best outcomes at the same time we are training fellows and residents. I, I think ideally that's what we want. So with that in mind, and maybe that's not where you want to go, I'm curious, what, what do you want to look at next? Where do we go from here in terms of figuring out how best to take care of our pediatric critically ill patients in terms of staffing model? And I would argue in terms of education of the next generation as well. What, what's, what's on the horizon? I think first of all, uh, being an investigator, being a scientist, uh, you're always ambiguous, you know, you're always thinking if this is the right thing or no. And we had a few sensitivity analysis that leave some ambiguity in our study. So the first, of, the first thing that I want to do is replicate this study from another prospective clinical database if possible. Then, as you said, I think we should dig in more uh, making different permutation combinations of 24-7 coverage with other staffing models and team structures and see what's the best team structure we can achieve without uh, impacting the other stuff. And the, the last thing that I really want to study is if 24-hour attending physician in addition to improving the outcomes is not causing a huge financial burden on an already yes. overburdened healthcare system. So I think again, this is in the ideal world, how much can we achieve that's to be seen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, on the one hand, you look at Penn who did try to do a randomized controlled trial, yeah. which was one center, but a bold, a bold step forward. It's hard to imagine doing a multi-center randomized controlled trial on this, but in some ways that would be so nice to have because I think you're right. It's really interesting as you talk about the financial part of it. If you look at your kind of architecture of what you demonstrated, more and more places are going to this model 
without overwhelming evidence. Your study supports it, so it's moving the needle a little bit towards it. But it, there's a lot of cost to paying attendings to be in the house all the time. So it feels like we need to investigate mm -hmm. it more before we commit to it across the board. And maybe we need to be more targeted in how we do it, having different staffing models depending on the, Absolutely. the institution Absolutely. and the environment and things like that. I completely agree. And uh, pediatric ICU is in a flux right now with, uh, with more subspecialities cropping up in pediatrics. People are trying to build a separate neuro ICU. People are trying to, like, we already have cardiac ICUs. So with the ICU, pediatric ICU itself in flux, I don't know how much those things are going to play in staffing patterns. That's interesting because it's evolving a little bit more towards the adult model of subspecialty ICUs. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, reading the article and talking with you. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know uh, about the study that you did or or the, the meaning thereof? No, I think first of all, uh, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to be on this podcast. I think I'll just, uh, as I said, I'm always skeptical being an author and I always say this is the first step in this direction. This is not the last step. And this is the beginning of a conversation. And um, before jumping on to changing their models, I'll, uh, I'll advise individual ICUs to look at their practice patterns, to look at the outcomes before they jump onto this model. I, I hear you, and I think that's great advice. It was a pleasure getting to talk with you. I really appreciate the time and the insights, and I look forward to seeing your next study when it gets published. Thanks so much. Thank you very much.